11. This comes after the vision on, of the millennium, the thousand years. And I'm not going to go over that again. If you want to find out what we said about that last week, there is a, a DVD. Is it a DVD? No, what do you call it? CD, whatever. It's available anyway, and you can get it on the internet as well. But uh, whilst Christians would disagree about the first 10 chapters, 10 um, verses of Revelation 20, uh, everyone agrees that what we read just now describes the day of judgment and the last day. Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is given to us. It is given to us this evening. It is given that we may hear your voice and that we may act upon it. O Lord, grant that each of us would do so. Speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. I believe that God is at work amongst us. I think, how do you define that? How do you say that? There are different signs that you can look for. And I can tell you that one of them is simply this. Um, I, we had a, a dinner last night and we were talking about, I don't know how we got onto this, but uh, what you want to be when you grow up type of thing. That was asking the children. And much to the amusement of my whole all the people who were there, I'd said when I, I'd wanted to be a lorry driver. That was one of my ambitions. Uh, I haven't. I never got to be a lorry driver or a politician, prime minister, the other one of the ambitions that I had, but uh, like Callum this morning. But I've been a minister for 22 years. And this is one thing that I've noticed uh, that happens when God begins to work. People begin to feel quite uncomfortable with the word of God. Not bored with the word of God, but quite uncomfortable. And I don't mean non-Christians. I mean Christians. Or sometimes people who profess to be Christians or who are nominal Christians, but Christians. And instead of being a bad thing, I actually consider this to be quite a positive thing. When people get angry, when people question when people are challenged, when people don't like what they hear, when people are in tears. It's, it really, really gets to you. And as I say, we do not like that. And the past two, three months, I doubt there's been a week where somebody hasn't said, you know, can we meet? And we say, okay, let's meet. And They've been very upset about something or uh, confused about something, really questioning. And it almost gets to a stage that sometimes you, you almost want to say, Lord, enough. But it's not enough because it's only just beginning. 
But you almost want to say enough because there are people who turn around and say, I can't handle this anymore. Sorry, this is way too heavy. This is way in over my head. Um, Yes, I know that we want to know the word of God and so on. But this is taking me way out of my comfort zone because there are Christians who have a parameter, have a framework in which they can fit everything. But if the Bible challenges that, then there can be quite a fierce reaction to it. Now, I'm not saying that to have a go at anyone. I'm saying that because it's true, and I'm saying it because it's true of me as well. There are times when I look at the Bible, and when I'm studying the Bible, and I'm just going, ouch, Lord, why is that true? And if that's true, then that impacts the way that I behave or the way that I think. And I don't have a handle on this. I don't have the control of this. Well, that's where we're at tonight as well, because when we look at this passage, it's a detailed vision. It's a new vision. That's how you get, I saw a great white throne. It's a new vision of the day of judgment painted in pretty vigorous colors. And it is not uh, comfortable. I was just, I'm just reading a book called A New Kind of Christian by a man called Brian McLaren. If you get the broadcast magazine of uh, Decca, not Decca, Dundee for Christ, Brian McLaren is being interviewed in that. I'll, I'll tell you this. When I heard he was coming, I volunteered to interview him. But I did tell the editor of the magazine that it wouldn't be the most sympathetic interview. And um, the editor declined my offer to interview. Uh, Brian is coming to speak in Perth and Evangelical Alliance are supporting him and so on. And uh, I'm, I really, really struggle with it. And I'll tell you why. In reading this book, I can tell you why. In the book, he, he argues in effect, that liberal and evangelical Christians, in other words, people who say that they're Christian, but would uh, a liberal I would define as somebody who uh, would take away from the Bible, say the Bible, well, it may say that, but it's not right. A liberal uh, and evangelical Christians, Brian McLaren implies, and, and actually explicitly states, are in effect just two sides of the same coin, just different aspects, and there's a truth that is above them both. Well, those of you who were at the debate on Monday night, you would have seen two completely different versions of Christianity. A rule when you debate with people is that you've got to be nice and polite to people. And that's good, because that comes naturally to some of us. Others have to struggle. But I have a lot of time and a lot of sympathy for non-Christians who come with genuine questions and who want to discuss and to debate and to argue. It's much, much, much harder to discuss with people who are professed to be Christians and then stand up and say what is directly contrary to the Bible and to the Word of God. And people look and they they say that on Monday night, my theological opponent on the other side had said, as I said this morning, he'd said about the doctrine of, of hell that he believed the Church of England Commission, which had said that the doctrine of hell was incompatible with the teaching of Jesus Christ. The obvious fault in that being very simply that um, 
the doctrine of hell is taught by Jesus Christ. Now, some Christians may say, well, you know, that's just a spat between Christians. It's just a theological thing. As long as we're all uh, believing and accepting uh, in God and we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ, then what does it really matter? And it's slightly unfair of you to you know, have a go at somebody like that because we're supposed to all be nice to one another. Isn't this a bad witness, etc., etc., etc.? Well, I'll tell you what's a bad witness. It's a really bad witness to stand up and say you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and then say, oh, by the way, Jesus got it wrong. That is a really, really bad witness. There is a sentimental, man-centered kind of religion which does not face up to the reality of judgment. And that's what we're facing at and looking at here. And I know that there are Christians, and I know that there are people who like Bible teaching and who like evangelical worship and who like all the, the things that, that they see life in the evangelical church and, and yet if you teach this it becomes almost too much and like I said at the beginning you get people who say no this is no I, I'm, I'm going to find myself a church where it's more comfortable now all I'm going to say is this If what is said here this evening is not in the Bible, throw it out. If what is said here is not consistent with the teaching, and in fact is not the teaching of Jesus Christ, get rid of it. But if it's what Christ says, don't do that. Now I want to say that this is also written against the background, or what I'm going to say is against this very simple background of the fact that when we die, it's not the end. Now, when we, we did this debate on physician-assisted suicide, of course, if you believe that human beings are autonomous, and if you believe that when you die, that's the end, then it makes a whole lot of sense to just say, put me out my misery. But when we die, it is not the end. There's a, a, a film, a cartoon film, The Iron Giant, if you've ever seen it. Uh, it's actually very, very good, even though it's a, a children's thing. And the Iron Giant in that film uh, says, souls don't die, souls don't die. And that is true, souls don't die. Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are told God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. We don't die. We die in terms of physically, we we die and yet we don't cease to exist now we're not reincarnated we don't come back as a as a plant or a bee or or whatever but we do have to face god and this section of the bible summarizes i think and brings to a climax a theme that runs through the whole bible that there is a day of judgment And that's what we look at. And I want to look simply at the fact of judgment, and then we're going to look at the foundation of judgment, and then the finality um, of it. Let me look first of all then at the fact of judgment. In Acts 17 and verse 31, we are told this, God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Look at uh, the great 
white throne here. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now again, as we've been saying through Revelation, don't be too disappointed if you standing before God on the day of judgment, there isn't actually a literal great white throne. You, you do not take the book of Revelation, every single image and picture in there, and, and say, well, it's got to be literally that. Now, that will become more significant as we look later on through this. But it's a picture, and it's telling us something, and it's what it tells us that's important. It's great because of the awesomeness of it. It's great because it's in contrast with the thrones in verse 4 of those who are seated who've been given authority to judge. This is the judge. This is a, a massive, comprehensive judgment from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, from the triune God. It's a white throne because throughout the book of Revelation, white is symbolic of holiness, purity, and glory. It's a white throne because it's a throne of triumph and a throne of purity. This is absolute justice. It's fair. It's spotless. It's true. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, says Abraham? And God is on that throne, and God judges. Now, no one, on the day of judgment, no one will be able to turn around to God and say, Ah, but you are being unfair. You see, it's interesting that what we do, and we still do this, and the temptation is to do it all the time. We think we can sit in judgment upon God. God, if this happens, that's not fair. If you allow this, that's not fair. If that occurs, that's not fair. But you have to stop and think about what we're doing. We're not on the throne. We don't know everything. And God, what, is, what we're being promised here is that God does God does know everything, and God will judge everything. Heaven and earth, we are told, or the earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, you'll see where some of this is coming from. <clears throat> 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord is usually understood as the day of judgment in the Bible. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Before the new creation can begin, the old has to be thrown away. Isaiah 51 verse 6, the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment. And that whole theme, there's... I could probably give you about 35 verses, both from the Old and from the New Testament, including the teaching of Jesus Christ, which says that, yes, the universe as we know it, the solar system as we know it, the world as we know it, actually is going to come to an end. Now, if you are a complete materialist and a secularist and you don't believe in God, then the, the teaching is the same, because you believe that the 
the solar system is going to come an end. You believe, if you're following a, the scientific understanding, that eventually it's all going to either implode or explode. But the Bible says that that's not just going to be, if you like, a, a random act of nature, but that God is going to bring that about. Heaven and earth flee before his presence. You know, that's an extraordinary thing, by the way, about the glory of God. In the Old Testament, we are told that Moses could not look upon God. It was, he, he fled from the presence of God. That when God, when there was a, what we call a theophany, an appearance of God, that it wasn't that people kind of wandered up and said, hi, God, and, you know, in the way that so many people talk. People couldn't ab- abide with it. And here we're told just how great and awesome God is, that the whole creation could not be in the presence of God. Heaven and earth flee before him. And everyone is judged. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Everyone who's ever lived, the rich and the powerful, the poor and the humble. Go back to, in Revelation to chapter 6 and verse 15. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, There are several in Revelation of this. Revelation 6 verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks on the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Chapter 11 and verse 18 of Revelation. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Everyone will stand in judgment. And let me just take that from the general to the very particular What you believe is irrelevant here. What will happen to you will happen to you whether you believe it or not. You and I will stand before God on the day of judgment. You know, there's been a great deal of fuss this week about uh, Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand caught out in their crudeness and their lewdness and their cheap nastiness. It's quite hypocritical, actually, how... You know, when you've got the Sun newspaper going berserk about it. It's hypocritical because it's our culture and our society that pays 18 million pounds salary to somebody who does that. That's, that's what they do. Highly entertaining broadcasters. But it's funny, you know, the, the, the notion that somehow it's edgy to, to be crude and rude and to, to be nasty to people well they did get caught out because we've got not just radio on which the program was broadcast but you've got the internet and you've got youtube and you've got recordings and it played back and played back and played back and you could argue in some sense they're being called to give account for a rather juvenile and cheap and nasty quote unquote bit of fun well The day of judgment is that magnified many, many, many times. There's nothing that 
we say or do which will be excused from that. And that's the second thing. That's the fact that there is going to be a day of judgment. And, and please let that fact stick in your head. It's so important to know that. The second thing is that there's a foundation of judgment. It says they were judged according to what they had done. Verse 12, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. It's judged according to what they had done and judged according to the books. The books were opened. It's this image of not just one book, but several books being opened. Now, at, at least in here, um, well, well, we'll talk about what these different books might be, but perhaps you can see where this comes from if you go to Daniel chapter 7, which is on page 892, and let's read from verse 9. Again in Revelation, remember that John is gathering together the scripture from, from all over the place, and this idea of the books is there as well. Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 7, page 892 and verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, Daniel was written when Daniel was taken into exile into what we would regard now as Iraq, Iran. It was governed by Persian kings and their normal way of governing was simply this. They kept a record of everything that happened within their kingdom. And when someone came from judgment or someone came to request something, the books were opened. So you have this image, if you imagine this is a throne where a king would be sitting down and there would be loads of scribes and the books would all be there. Someone would come in and the books would be opened and the book that referred to their province and what was going on in their circumstances uh, would be there. It was all written down. And that's the image that Daniel takes and it's the image that, uh, of the vision that John is given as well. What these books represent is a record of everything that has taken place. One of these books, at least, is, again, please, it's not a literal book, but it's saying that everything is recorded. Now, you have to stop and think about that for a moment. There are things that you thought were dead and buried, and there are things that you have gone and dead and buried them in your life they're in in your subconscious they're gone you know take a mega therapist to get them out but they're gone as far as you're concerned you've forgotten about them but they're not gone there are things that you will have done things that you will have said and even this week you said something and you just go i'm so glad there wasn't a microphone recording that you know, it's quite funny because quite often I go and speak in a church and you get given one of these and um, the elder will say to you, be careful what you say because it's on. Now, why should what I say, because a microphone is on, be different when the microphone's not on? I mean, well, there are fairly obvious reasons uh, about that. 
But what we are being told here is that there isn't a single thing that you and I have done which is hidden and which will remain hidden. There's a television program, or used to be, I don't know if it's still on, called This Is Your Life. And for those of you who've never seen it, the idea is that you come in, you get surprised, you know, people go, oh, and then this guy called Eamon Andrews comes out with a big red book and this is your life. And sorry, he does it in an Irish accent, but, and, and then, um, you know, uh, this was your school teacher who said you'd never make it. And, you know, uh, here's your long lost brother you didn't know was alive. And, well, everyone blubbers and it's all, everyone's life is fantastic. You know, it's all wonderful and it's all great. I've often wondered, I think this would be really edgy television. If you said, this is your life, here is the person that you beat up in school and tortured. You know, this is the woman who hates you because of the way that you treated her. This is the person you told that lie to that destroyed their life. I mean, you just, there's no way that people would do that. Well, this idea of judgment, it's not sugarcoating over our whole life. It's God saying, you're judged for all that you've done. You know, there you are, you preach preacher, you stand up and you preach. And then you go home and you abuse your family. I saw that and it's there. You know, there you are, this, this Christian and this evangelical Christian. You're talking about your love for Jesus and so on. And you know all the words and you know all the jargon. But it's not just what you've done. Here's my record of your heart. Here's my record of your greed. Here's my record of your self-obsession. Here's my record of how you even used the gospel of my precious son and you used it to advance yourself. It's all there. Romans 2.16, Paul says, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Everything is revealed. The value, the character, the true worth, the whole set of every person's life and work will be laid bare. And that is a distinctly uncomfortable thought. And yet, you and I must face up to that. It is, it, I cannot describe how it changes your life if you accept that and realize that. How it changes the way that you behave, how it changes your view of the gospel, how it, it cuts through all the junk and all the hypocrisy and all the, the, the playmaking that goes on in our lives. To know that God will one day show the whole story, the true story, the real story, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's one book, the book of, that's recorded of everything. I think also in this, I'd like to suggest that there's the book, this book, The Word of God, that God... As Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That God revealed himself through his word. And particularly for those of us who are Christians. And for those who have grown up in a Christian context as well. We will be judged by, by, by what we have known. I think also, there is clearly another book was opened, which is the book of life. And I'm going to say more about that. Uh, in a moment, because that is particularly important. So you have this, 
the, the foundation of judgment is what we have done, and it's God's knowledge of that, and it's God's righteousness, and God's justice. But then there's a finality in it as well. The death, then verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades, that's simple. Death and Hades represent both the fact of dying and the condition entered on after death. The lake of fire, that is pictorial. You know, Dante's Inferno. It's not, that's not how it's going to be. But don't take that as a cause for relief. And I don't understand Christians who go, oh, it's just a picture. That's a relief. Look, it's a picture of something. And what it's a picture of is far worse than the literal fire that people think is hell. In the same way as the picture of the city of Jerusalem or the picture that you get in Revelation 7 of heaven is just a picture. The reality is far more glorious than the image. So the reality of hell is far more dreadful than the image that we get. It's something terrible. Look at chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's another image. It's an image for being shut out. In chapter 21, as as we'll go on to see, there's this... Uh, all-embracingness of people being welcomed in. But here's an image of being shut out in the darkness, shut out in the emptiness, left in the ultimate black hole where there is nothing of the love and the glory and the beauty of God. It's, it's a terrible image. It's a terrible picture. And the lake of fire is a terrible uh, Image And I, there, there are two things that make me concerned about. One is the way that people use hell in such a light way. You know, like you get um, television programs, my holiday hell, you know, holidays from hell or friends from hell or families from hell and so on. That's, Christians should at least not use language like that. You know, you say something, oh, it was hellish. No, 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 it wasn't hellish. It wasn't hellish. Hell is, 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 is something that is actually real. I went to, um, this, is not, this is not hell, but I, I went to take uh, Emma Jane to see High School Musical 3 last night. And, and I just couldn't. I mean, the poor girl, I couldn't go in. I, the torture of going through that. So I actually decided, you go, you're a big girl now. You go in and see High School Musical 3. I'll go and see an adult film. So I went to see James Bond. Forget it, by the way. Oh, just absolutely awful film. Dreadful film. Just, and I, it was, I mean, dreadful just because it was so boring, amongst other things. But it's the adverts that got me. The adverts for films that are coming. You know, we're, we've gone back to kind of McCarthyite 19... Uh, 50s and 1960s where in the sort of great communist scare there were all these films coming out of Hollywood about aliens invading earth well particularly invading America and I think I lost count but I think there was at least three films that are coming out about the great battle all these aliens coming and they're all going to destroy us and they're all coming to get us and watch out and I just thought and watching the Bond thing as well I just thought you know is it are, are we reduced to this as human beings that the only things that motivate us are smut, 
sexual promiscuity and fear. Now, is that, is that what it's all about? And obviously, from a biblical point of view, it's not. But what got me about the fear side of things is that it's almost as though people are trying to scare themselves in order to set themselves free from real fear, from the reality of what is to come. No, we're not going to be invaded by aliens and and zapped by monsters from space who are trying to take us over. But we are going to stand before God on the day of judgment. And there is a very real possibility that we could end up in hell. In fact, it's not a possibility. It's something that's certain and definite if we die in our sins, with our sins unforgiven, without Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. The objections you get to that are the theologian on on Monday quoting, it's incompatible with the teaching of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, it is the teaching of Jesus Christ, first of all. But why? The, The idea that people say that is, well, you know, Jesus taught us about love and so on. And, you know, the notion of God judging and hell, that's not very loving. I want to strongly recommend to you. Uh, Tim Keller's chapter on that in his book, The Reason for God, and also a sermon that he's got on his website on that, which really, in which he argues very, very strongly that hell is essential and necessary if God is to be just and true and fair and right. And one of the things that Keller says that has often been said is that all who are in hell choose to go there. And he he points this out. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who say, my will be done, and those who say, thy will be done. Those who say, my will be done, end up in hell because that's what they have chosen to do. They have chosen to live a life without God. And those who say, thy will be done, are those who bow before God and bow before Jesus Christ and, and submit themselves to him. Now, you see a kind of... Paul's teaching of this in Romans chapter 2. Go to Romans chapter 2. And let's read verse, from verse 2. Romans 2 and verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. In other words, what Paul is saying is, God is kind, tolerant, and patient, and he's wanting you to come to repentance. But, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and distress. If you're self-seeking, reject the truth and follow evening, there will be wrath and anger, trouble and distress, and so on. The finality of judgment is simply this, that... We choose to live without God. We get what we choose. And that is what it is. It is hell. Now I want to return to this book that we haven't mentioned, The Lamb's 
or we haven't looked at the Lamb's book of life, or it's described here as the book of life in chapter 21, verse 27. It's described as the Lamb's book of life in uh, chapter 3 and chapter 13 and verse 8. It's also described as the Lamb's book of life. Here is the bottom line. If you and I stand before God in the day of judgment and we are judged according to what we have done, and that's it, that's it, the book's open, the whole scene is played, we all go to hell, without exception. Nice little old lady with her hat who's attending church every Sunday, mass murderer, junkie, the uh, politician, the rich, the poor, all of us go to hell because all of us are in rebellion against God. There is none righteous, no, not one. But not everyone does go to hell. Everyone deserves to go, but not everyone does. Why? We've already been told in, in Revelation that there are is a, a multitude that no one can count that go to heaven. Why do they go? They are in the Lamb's book of life. And what that means is this, that they are not trusting in their own merit, their own works, their own righteousness, but they are trusting in the work of Christ, the merits of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ, and the death of Christ. And when you and I stand in judgment, and I, I'm certain that Christians are included in this chapter, everyone is included, the dead are judged according to what they had done, you, you, you tend to think this will be such a nightmare. But it's not such a nightmare because then we will see clearly, even now, even the most lucid of you, even the most holy of you, even the, the person who is closest to God, you don't see it. You don't grasp it as much as you can. And I don't grasp it and I don't see it. But I love this picture, this picture that on the day of judgment, we will know. We will know as we are known. We will see as Christ sees more clearly than ever, we will see the greatness of God's grace in saving us, and we will see the perfection of Christ's work. And our sins will be more horrible than we could ever have imagined. And without Christ, we would collapse in agony at the, the sinfulness and the darkness and the stupidity and the ignorance and the hatred and the greed of our own hearts. All the pretense will have gone. But the believer will stand in the day of judgment and all that will be there, but all of it is overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed by what Jesus Christ has done for us. There's a, a lovely, lovely hymn, which I, I just, a song, which I, I, I think it's just, it's an incredible song. The deep, deep love of Jesus. How do you know the deep, deep love of Jesus? Keller quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I think this was Martin Lloyd, one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' just great illustrations. He describes this understanding of the deep love of Jesus and the grace of God in this way. Imagine you have a friend who comes to you and says, you know, I was at your house today, and a postman turned up, and there was a debt that you owed, and I paid it for you. You don't know how grateful you're going to be to your friend until you find out what that debt is. If it's just the postage, it was two pence short on the stamp. Nice friend. You know, glad you did that. If it's someone coming, or a letter or something, with a demand for a thousand pounds, they pay it for you. Wow, 
really nice friend. You need to know how much has been owed in order to appreciate what has been given. And you see, this is why this teaching about judgment and hell is so important. Because you will not grasp and you will not understand the love of Jesus. And it's why the phrase, oh, I believe in a Jesus of love, therefore I don't believe in hell, is so utterly meaningless and banal. Because Jesus died on the cross for you and he died on the cross for me. And until you understand what that meant, you won't know anything of the deep, deep love of Jesus. But on the day of judgment, you and I will know that. We will know what the bill is. Right now we may think, oh, I've got some idea of what the bill is. I did this terrible thing and God forgave me. And or I've done this and I'm just so thankful to Jesus. And sometimes I get a little glimpse as I look in his word. But let me tell you this, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Christ on the cross. We say in the uh, Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. And sometimes people quibble about that. And was it literal and so on? It doesn't matter. That's not the issue. What matters is he suffered hell for us. Not till then, says the hymn writer, will I know how much I owe. And on the day of judgment... You as a Christian, if you are a believer, you will be standing there and you will be going, wow, I did that. I thought that. This, I see it in all this. This is awful. But that won't be on your mind because what you will see far more is how Jesus erased your sin. How Jesus has paid the price of your sin. What a tremendous cost it was for Jesus. And it's only on the day of judgment that you and I will truly be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Because we will see what it cost Jesus to, to save us and to redeem us. I hate cheap grace. I hate shallow religion and cheap Christianity. And all done in the name of niceness. And let's be cute and let's be cuddly and let's be nice and let's, because what it does, the reason I hate it is simply this, not because I'm some morbid Calvinist who likes taking delight in suffering and misery and pain, but because it takes away from the glory of Jesus Christ. If he paid a debt or a bill that was that. So, praise you Jesus, thank you. Hallelujah Jesus, praise the Lord and so on. But if he paid a debt, that is so heavy that even to see it would destroy me. Even to see it, the burden would crush me. But to know that Christ paid that debt, then I am lost in wonder, love, and praise. And that's what happens on the day of judgment. Christ on the cross. That's why you see in Revelation, you have Jesus in the center of the throne, the lamb looking as if it had been slain. And that's why we in heaven, we gaze upon him and we worship him because of what he did. And if your understanding of sin, if your doctrine of sin, if your doctrine of judgment, if your doctrine of God is wrong, that's not just a trivial matter that's got to do with creeds and everything else. That's got to do with the whole heart of the gospel. And it demeans and it takes away from Jesus Christ to trivialize hell and to trivialize the teaching about God's judgment and God's wrath. We need to see the cross more. We need to see Christ and what Christ has done more. We need to understand it. You know, how wonderful it is, how precious it is to know that Jesus, that God loves you so much. 
You know, don't you just hate that phrase, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. You know, a wee sticky badge with a smiley face, God loves me. You know, we, it's, for me, it's incomprehensible that we've reduced God's love to a Daily Mail cartoon. That we've reduced God's love to a series of cheap laughs. That we've reduced God's love to a feel-good factor for us. That we've reduced God's love to me, 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 me. When it's so much greater and so much grander and so much deeper. And that's why Paul says, I pray that you would know how wide and how deep and how long is the love of Christ. And you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. And that's why that song is so right. The deep, deep love of Jesus. So you see, I don't, I don't look at this passage and hear about the lake of fire and death and Hades and so on. I don't look at it and I don't say, oh Lord, isn't that terrible? Isn't that awful? Isn't that, you know, I wish I wasn't there. I look at this passage and I say, God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for what is there because it shows me what my Savior went through. It shows me what he had to do. And I want to leave you with a challenge, both ways. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 5, verse 24 says this, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. And verse 29 says, Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now you see, the gospel makes sense in the context of heaven and hell and the day of judgment because Jesus says, I came for this purpose, and I came to save you. And you you, what do you do? What do I do? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You know, I was so encouraged this morning by, by many, many different things. There's so many things that could discourage you. But I'm, I'm just learning, to be honest, to say to the devil, forget it. Look, this, there are things that really, really encourage there was a gentleman in church this morning. You know what was marvelous about him being in church this morning? He'd never been in a Christian church before. He'd never heard the Bible being taught before. Now, doesn't that absolutely thrill you? Don't you wish that you'd met that guy? What must it be like to come and just to... to, to I mean, for me, it's just fantastic. I think it's just wonderful that God does that. And I'll tell you why it thrills me. Because... This gospel is not for free church people, not for Scottish people, not for people who we might say are like us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. And God sends someone into the church this morning who'd never been in a Christian church before. And what an opportunity to, to hear and to talk to people and to share with people. And I want to say this to you. Please, please, please consider your life and consider your work and consider your, what you do in this church and everything else in the light of the day of judgment. 
because on the day of judgment, you are not going to be concerned two hoots. What happened here, what occurred there, what emotion you had here. But you are going to be concerned about the dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people you meet in your life who are literally on the road to hell. And you never said a word. Not a word. Not a thing. And you never felt an emotion. You never agonized. You never prayed for them. You're just so concerned for what you want right here and right now. If, as a Christian, you grasp this teaching, it changes your whole perspective on everyone. Paul says, I just long, I long for people to know Jesus Christ. And that's what we want as well, because we do believe in hell, because we do believe in the day of judgment, because we know that that's not just for some Christians and for other people, and well, it's whatever you believe, it's whatever you believe. No, 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 no. God is glorified. Christ is glorified when people are saved through Jesus Christ. And that's another word. Salvation has been cheapened. So many words have been cheapened. Well, let's take them back. Let's take them back in the context of the, of the whole of the Bible. And let's live lives which bring glory to Jesus. And let me just say this to anyone here who's not yet a Christian or someone who says that you're a Christian. You're thinking, well, I'm not too sure where I'm at. Get it right. Get it right. You may have lots of things in your life that you have to get sorted out. Relationships, insurance policies, future job prospects, housing, many, many things. All of them pale into insignificance compared with this one. Get it right. Jesus offers to save. You'll never save yourself. Accept his offer. Seek him while he may be found. While it is still the day of salvation and not the day of judgment. Let's pray.